of it and do the same. Uh, but either way, uh, we'll have the ushers at the doors uh, when we wrap up our service today. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. The message today is entitled, Our Hope is in the Righteous King. We've been studying through the minor prophets. We've come now to the second to last minor prophet. And the message that God might have for us in it from both history and real time today, as well as what we can anticipate in our hope to come. When you think about hope, hope has been defined as a confident and eager expectation of something good. Hope has a positive con connotation, uh, and it's much more than wishful thinking. It can bring us to a place of remembrance because we can look back and see how God has been faithful in our lives. It can bring us to a place of confidence because we know he's with us in the present and our lives have an eternal purpose in him. And then it can help us build resilience as we look toward the future and we hope for what God has in store for us. But sometimes we might feel like we've lost hope. In fact, we can get in positions either because of our own decisions or circumstances around us or any number of things where we feel like we've just lost hope. God often either allows us in those positions or puts us in those positions so that we can learn to trust him more and depend on him more. The setting is that Zechariah wrote to Jews who had just returned from Babylonian captivity. God referred to them as prisoners of hope in Zechariah 9 and verse 12. Perhaps they saw themselves as prisoners of circumstance, but God infused them with hope and he promised deliverance for them. And we might think of someone who is or has been a prisoner as someone who is deprived of freedom because of previous actions. But there's a little bit more going on here because the phrase prisoners of hope is translated in the New Living Translation as prisoners who still have hope. They could still have hope if they turned their attention to God. And if you feel like today that you have come to a place where you're short on hope, I'm telling you that there is plenty of hope to be found if you will turn your attention to God. You can learn to cultivate hope in your life through faith in God. And because of that, you can have the strength and the encouragement that you need to continue on. So let's begin reading in Zechariah 1 and verse 1. And as we begin, I'm going to go through verse 6. And this is what the Word of God says. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the Word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Iddo. The Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors, verse 2. So tell the people, this is what the Lord of armies says. Return to me, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Verse 4, do not be like your ancestors. The earlier prophets proclaimed to them, this is what the Lord of armies says, turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not listen. 
or pay attention to me. This is the Lord's declaration. And now two rhetorical questions in verse 5. Where are your ancestors now? And do the prophets live forever? But didn't my words and my statutes that I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? So the people repented and said, As the Lord of armies decided to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Now there's an interesting connection here between several of the names that are listed in these opening verses. Zechariah's name means whom the Lord remembers. Barakiah's name means whom the Lord blesses. And Ido's name means at the appointed time. So some have taken these together and considered them together, believing that the message is God remembers his chosen people and he will bless them at his appointed time. Now, whether or not there's any actual connection with those names is ultimately irrelevant because that is a biblical truth, that God remembers his people and he will bless them in his appointed time. The book overflows with hope that God would remember his promises. And Zechariah sees what amounts to images of the future. These are concepts of what God is going to do with certain events mixed in. And Zechariah was the grandson of the priest Ido. It's important to note that because Zechariah would have understood both the priestly line and the prophet line. So he would have known full well what the worship of God among the people was to entail. Haggai was his older contemporary and they delivered messages to the remnant that returned. They encouraged a, a struggling people who had now come back from captivity in Babylon to rebuild the temple of God. And two months into the project, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. The prophecy of Zechariah is noted for a rich mixture of visions, pictures, and symbols. There are dated visions and pictures and symbols and messages in chapters 1 through 8. These are happening at the same basic time period as Haggai's. And then from there, the message pushes out much further into the future, even into eternity. The nation would be judged, but they would be restored and God would rebuild them. Now, admittedly, 14 chapters in one book is deserving of a full series, a much longer series, and perhaps in the future we'll come back to it in the form of a Bible study at another time and another day. But for now, today, we're going to consider it thematically as we have the other minor prophets in this study. I love what Herschel York said. He's a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and also the pastor of Buck Run Baptist Church in Kentucky. And he said, whenever we read the Old Testament, we're always looking. We don't read the Old Testament as though we didn't know the New Testament. We read it knowing that it's been fulfilled in Christ, that all of those Old Testament pictures point to Christ, that the sacrifices point to the sacrifice he made, and that God's dealing with his people there ultimately points to the way that he will deal with his people in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, and even throughout eternity. 
And he said, we're always looking there for these pictures of Christ, for glimpses of the gospel that are foreshadowed and foretold. The message of Zechariah has the greatest number of messianic passages in the minor prophets. The Messiah would come and dwell in their midst in his return. And the New Testament cites or alludes to Zechariah at least 41 times. So there's this interwoven connection between all of these visions, pictures, and symbols with Christ, what was to come in his perfect finished work at the cross and in his resurrection, and what is still to come. And with this, there are some great similarities to the book of Isaiah. In fact, some have referred to this book as kind of a miniature book of Isaiah. Jesus the Messiah will come as Savior and Judge and the Righteous King. He will rule His people. And even though God's people will have been scattered among the nations, God still loves them and will accomplish His purposes. So we have this dual fulfillment going on again, as we often see in prophetic uh, literature. And I want us to consider what a return to God involves. Dr. Charles Feinberg said, This call to return dare not be passed over lightly, for it is the basic and fundamental plea of God throughout the Bible to all sinful men. The Hebrew word return is the word for turning or for repentance. We come to Jesus, of course, initially as New Testament Christians uh, by repentance and faith, and then the Christian life is characterized by continual repentance. So, it's not as though we repent, we believe, we're saved, and we leave all that behind. Yes, we're as saved as we're ever going to be. It's a done deal. It's finished because of what Christ has done on our behalf. But then as long as we reside in the flesh, we're going to struggle with sin until we're in the presence of the Lord for eternity. And we're going to deal with these things, which means that we have to live in light of the gospel, not just the day that we're saved, but throughout our lives. Zechariah's audience had returned to the land. They were rebuilding the temple. They might have been wondering, why do we need to return to God? So he begins by answering the question. And this is our first point today. A return to God is necessary because of his wrath against sin. This theme of wrath has come up again and again among the prophets. In verse 2, it says, The Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors. Zechariah opens here with a message of God's wrath towards sin. In the original language, the, the verb for to be angry is actually placed in the first part of the sentence for emphasis. And here's why that's significant. It means literally, he was angry with anger. He is full of wrath. Now, where does that come from? Well, God is a holy God. That's his character. The judge of all the earth always does what is right. And the divine response to human sin and disobedience is righteous indignation, consequences for that sin, and a warning about that sin. We find a similar theme in the Psalms. In Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. And then Psalm 2 and verse 4 says this about God. 
The one enthroned in heaven laughs, and the Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Or what about John 3 and verse 36? The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Listen to the last part of this verse. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. The idea of God's anger or wrath against sin doesn't fit very well with the contemporary view of God. The contemporary view of God is wrong, but it doesn't fit with it. The love of God is emphasized to the neglect of God's wrath against sin and against sinners. And when you come to that place, anything goes. Call yourself what you want to call yourself. Do what you want to do. There's no accountability. God is love, so everything you do is just fine. No worries. Just go ahead, celebrate it, promote it, lift it up. And that's the place that we've come to where people don't have a clear understanding biblically or historically of who God really is. It is an affront, ultimately, to the character of God. Because if we cannot understand the holy character of God, we can't understand what sin is to begin with. And if we can't understand what sin is to begin with, we certainly can't understand what salvation is. So this is a foundational issue. Now, God is love, obviously. He shows love and grace and mercy to all who repent. In his holiness, he cannot, he will not, and he does not turn a blind eye toward our sin. He does not treat it lightly. And no matter what the culture we are in is doing to redefine truth, truth remains because truth is that which corresponds to reality. Truth is not that which corresponds to popular opinion unless the popular opinion corresponds to reality. Merrill Unger said, those who abuse the truth that God is love and make him some doting, indulgent father to, to those who sustain no genuine relationship with him, forget that our God is a consuming fire. I think one thing that is uh, symbolic of this is that a much greater proportion of people believe in the existence of heaven than believe in the existence of hell. But hell is just as much a reality as is heaven. The doctrine of hell holds that hell is a real place to which unbelieving sinners are sent in judgment. All have sinned, and the just penalty for our sin is death. And all sin is ultimately against God. And when our sins have been dealt with, we will not pay the penalty for them because there's no need for a double penalty to be paid. When our sins have been dealt with through faith in Christ and his blood cleanses us of our sins, then we are declared righteous in Jesus. And Jesus bore the wrath. Jesus took the penalty. Jesus endured the suffering so that you and I wouldn't have to. That's the message of the gospel. And any other teaching of the gospel is no gospel at all. And hell is infinite and it will be deserved because of sin. The Bible uses the language of eternal fire, unquenchable fire, shame and everlasting contempt, torment, the place where the smoke of torment rises forever and ever, and the punishment of the wicked in hell is as everlasting as the blessing of the righteous in heaven. And I'll note here, because it's of utmost importance, that Jesus 
spoke more of hell in the Bible than anybody else. So if you want to tell me the story of Jesus, make sure that you tell it right. And make sure that you get the full story. All who trust in Jesus can be assured that God's wrath will never fall on them in judgment. Romans 5 and verse 9 says, How much more then, since we've now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? There's a story told by Wynn Collier of a man named Walter Dixon. Dixon was married, and he only had five days to go on a honeymoon before he shipped off to the Korean War many years ago. Less than a year later, troops found Dixon's jacket on the battlefield. In that jacket were stuffed letters from his newlywed wife. The military determined that uh, this man, uh, Walter Dixon, had actually been killed in action. So they declared him dead. But in reality, he was alive. He had been captured. He spent two and a half years as a prisoner of war in a camp. Every waking hour, he plotted to get home. He tried to escape along with some others five different times every single time he was recaptured. And then finally, he was set free. You can imagine the amazement of a family that thought he'd been killed in action and had already mourned him. And in reality, he'd been captured and needed to be set free. When we are in our trespasses and our sins, we are in bondage to those sins. And God's people knew physically what it was like to be captured, to be moved away, to long for home. But they knew spiritually also because of their rebellion against God. They had uh, created a situation where they were exiles. They woke every morning yearning to return. But they had no way to rescue themselves. And in the midst of all that, God gives this message that he's not forgotten them. God would meet them in their relentless ache for home. Not because of their perseverance. Not because they were deserving of it. But because of his mercy. And God says to them, I will signal for them and they will return. And maybe today your sense of exile has come because... There's something in your life that has drawn you far away from God. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been born again, and there's something in your life that is drawing you away from the Lord, you're feeling a sense of conviction because of the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. That's a good sign. If you feel no conviction about your sin and you claim to be a Christian, that's a problem. But not only are you probably experiencing some conviction about that sin, but you're also potentially experiencing the chastening hand of God. And that discipline that God places on your life is not intended to be punitive. That discipline is intended to lead you to a place of repentance, to lead you back home to where you need to be. And whatever your situation is, God hasn't forgotten you. He is calling, and you need to answer and when you answer, you need to return home to Him. But if you've not trusted in Christ as your Savior, and you've not received the gift of everlasting life in Him, then you need to take that first step of repentance today and realize that a return to God is necessary because of His wrath against sin. And then there's a second point. 
a return to God is welcomed in his presence. Verse 3, he said, tell the people, this is what the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts says. Return to me, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts. So when you repent and you trust in God's provision of Jesus as your Savior in his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection, God pardons you completely. And then as a follower of Jesus, you will live a repentant life in God's grace. It's God who extends the invitation to return when a person is not where they need to be with him. Now you'll note here that three times in this one verse, in verse 3, three times, Zechariah refers to God as the Lord of armies and the Lord of hosts. That's profoundly important because it underscores the sovereignty of God. Or to state it another way, God makes the first move and we have the responsibility to respond. And the message is return to me. And and I love this personal language here because it's a personal appeal to return to the one who has created you, the one who redeems you, the one who sustains you. And you may think, well, pastor, you, you don't know what I've done. Certainly God couldn't forgive me. You don't know my track record. Certainly there is no hope for me. And I want you to know that as long as you are breathing, you are not beyond the grace and the mercy of God. The opportunity for you to return to him, to come back to the creator who made you and loves you and redeems you in Christ is an open invitation. The old preacher Charles Simeon said, search the inspired volume, meaning the Bible. Search the annals of the whole world and find, if you can, one mourning and believing sinner whom he cast out or find, if you can, any limit to his mercy and grace. That's not the record of the scripture. The record of the scripture is all who come back are received into his presence. But there has to be a return. I remember years ago when I was growing up and even in my early years in the ministry that I heard a lot of language and a lot of references in preaching uh, to the idea of being backslidden or the idea of backsliding. I used to hear it all the time. And then it faded, and I think one of the reasons it faded is because the church is not talking a whole lot about sin. We try to dress it up and call it all sorts of other things, and yet it is a biblical concept. And it comes mainly from Jeremiah 8 and verse 5. It says this. Why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by perpetual backsliding? They hold fast deceit and they refuse to return. Now, let me just preface my comments here about this backslidden condition by saying that once a person is secure in Jesus... He will keep them to the end and not one will be lost. That's what Jesus said. All that the Father give to him are safe in him. It is possible, however, for a Christian, someone who's truly a follower of Jesus, to fall into sin or maybe to jump into sin, as it were, and put themselves in a position to be disciplined. When a professing believer is in sin... Only God knows whether or not they're actually saved to begin with. I'm not the Holy Spirit. You're not the Holy Spirit. That's not up for us to decide. 
But we can evaluate our own lives when we drift away from the Lord or get away from Him because of our sin. And we can understand the need to come back to Him and to be welcomed into His presence as believers. There's a story told about a man by the name of Robert Robinson. And he was the author of the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And he lost, he said, the communion that he had with the Savior that he had once enjoyed. And in his declining years, he wandered into what he described as the byways of sin. Now understand, uh, when you are in a relationship with God in Christ, the relationship is not severed, but the fellowship is hindered. And I think that's what's in view here with Robert Robinson's life. So he's deeply troubled in his spirit. He's hoping to relieve his mind, and he decides he's going to travel. This is in a day when everybody didn't travel like they do today, but that's what he was going to do to solve his problems. So in the course of his journeys, and I think in the providence of God, he came across a young woman who asked him directly a question about a hymn that she had been reading. To his astonishment, he found out that it was none other than his own composition. He tried to evade her question at first, but she continued to press him for a response. And pretty soon, he's just crying. He's, he's weeping in the moment. And with, with tears streaming down his cheeks, he said, I am the man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I'd do anything to experience the joy that I had then. Although greatly surprised, the young woman reassured him that the streams of mercy referenced in the song still flowed and they were enough for him. This man was deeply touched. He turned his wandering heart to the Lord and was restored to full fellowship. You see, a backslider has wandered away from where they should be but can be restored if they return to God. If you're in Christ and you're in a backslidden condition, the message to you is return. If you are not saved, if you are not in Christ, you're not yet a Christian, the message to you is repent and believe and God will welcome you home. And then that brings me to the third and final point. A return to God does not always take place and we can learn from those who refuse it. Let's look again in verse 4 and verse 5. Do not be like your ancestors is the message. The earlier prophets proclaimed to them, this is what the Lord of armies says, turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds, but they did not listen or pay attention to me. This is the Lord's declaration. And then he asked those rhetorical questions in verse 5. Where are your ancestors now? They were dead, graveyard dead. And do the prophets live forever? Nope, not in this life. So he gives a warning, don't be like your ancestors. And maybe some of us need to hear that same message today. Maybe we've got some ancestors somewhere along the way that were far from God and didn't do anything that God told them to do. We didn't learn by their example in a good way. We learned by their example in a bad way. And maybe the message to us is, listen, don't be like them. Or it could be people that you've been around who heard the word of truth, who knew what it meant to be a follower of Jesus and yet they rejected it don't be like them and Zechariah brings up three warnings from their history here in verses 4 through 6 
First, there's a warning about disobedience in verse 4. When he refers to the fathers or the ancestors, um, I think he's especially thinking in, in the context, the biblical context here, of those who went into Babylonian captivity. God had told them, he repeated it, uh, he, he warned them about their spiritual condition and their actions, and what did they do? They refused to listen, they refused to obey, they did what they wanted to do, and they ended up in exile because of it. Um, I think about the prophet Jeremiah when they asked him what to do, and they said they would obey, but all they really wanted Jeremiah to do was to give them a stamp of approval on what they were already going to do, and the warning is, don't follow in their stubborn disobedience. Don't do it. Second, there's a warning about delay in verse 5. Spiritual opportunity has a shelf life, and it will not last forever. You say, what can you be certain is the shelf life of spiritual opportunity? Well, I know for sure it's when you take your last breath and you step into the next life that opportunity will have passed. And the problem is, none of us know when that's going to happen. The ancestors had died. Some of the prophets had died. We will eventually die. Today is the day to return to God because we're not promised tomorrow. And 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 2 says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So you understand, when you hear the message of of God's grace and His mercy and the invitation to come to Him and to be welcomed into His presence. Church, this is an urgent message. And I think one of the things that's happened in so much preaching in many churches is that we've lost the urgency. We've forgotten that apart from Christ, people are on their way to hell. That apart from Christ, we were on our way to hell. But God in His grace and His mercy sent His only Son to live and to die and to now live again. And there's an urgency to this message. There's a warning here about delay. That there's, there's no time for spiritual apathy. There's no place for spiritual lukewarmness. There's no situation where we should be half-hearted in our faith. We should listen and heed this warning about delay. And then third and finally, there's a warning about divine discipline in verse 6. The people who repented probably refers to those who suffered the consequences of captivity once again. They came to their senses. They realized the prophets were right. They realized God was right. Do you know everybody someday is going to know that God was right? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. People can disagree now. People can ignore the warnings. People can redefine truth. But there's coming a day when everybody will know. And there's a warning here about that divine discipline. And it reminds us that genuine repentance doesn't make excuses. It takes responsibility. You know how you can tell if somebody is truly sorry for actions they've undertaken? They take responsibility without qualification. They don't call it something that it's not. They don't blame it on other people. They don't try to lie their way out of it. They don't try to moderate the effect of it. They just own it. And that's a good pattern for all of us biblically, is to own it. And confessions agreeing with God about what sin is. We're confessing and agreeing with what 
we know we've done wrong. God overtook the offenders, and the idea of God relentlessly pursuing and hunting down his people is the history of how God deals with us, and it should drive us to return to him. I'm going to give you rapid fire, some summary lessons from Zechariah. You're going to have to listen quickly, and I'll be glad to send these to you. Just send me a message, email me or text or something, I'll send them to you. But I'm going to go through these because I think they bring together the entire message of Zechariah. And I'll move quickly, so here they are. There are consequences for disobedience. Chapter 1 and verse 2. There are blessings for faith. Chapter 1 and verse 3. The Lord's promises are sure. Chapter 1 and verse 6. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Chapter 3 and verse 8 says, My servant, the branch. Chapter 9 and verse 9 says, See, your king is coming. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We depend on the power of God. Chapter 4 and verse 6 says, Not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Obeying the Lord is always the right thing to do. Chapter 6 and verse 15. This will happen when you fully obey the Lord your God. God cares about justice. He says in chapter 7 and verse 9, render true justice. Strength and security come from the Lord. Chapter 10 and verse 12. And then finally, the last part of this prophecy a day of the lord is coming so it says specifically in chapter 14 and verse 1 and i close with zechariah 14 and verse 9 on that day the lord will become king over all the earth the lord alone and his name alone we should eagerly anticipate the day of the lord it's a major theme in the closing chapter it represents a time in the future when the Lord will bring judgment to the wicked and salvation to the faithful. And the hallmark of this day will be the return of Jesus. He will vanquish all his enemies. He will establish his the millennial reign over all the earth from Jerusalem. And the last half of the chapter tells of the establishment of Christ's righteous kingdom over all the earth. Church, I'm glad to be able to tell you today that our hope is in the righteous king. But it's not enough just to know it in your head or to know that somebody else knows it. It has to be personal. Is your hope in the righteous king? Do you know him by faith? Have you been embraced by his love and his forgiveness and been given the gift of eternal life? If you have, you've got a lot to be thankful for. If you haven't, you can take that step of faith today. Father, we thank you for your word, for the truth that it represents, for Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Thank you for being patient and merciful with us and drawing us to yourself. Thank you for showing us the way and not leaving us in darkness. I pray if there are any here today that need to take spiritual steps, whether it be a step of repentance and faith and be saved, or a step of repentance to get back in a right relationship with you as your child that today would be the day maybe there's some here today who feel like they're at the end of their rope they're at the end of the hope that they have in their lives i pray that today that you would fill them with hope 
that they would leave this place today knowing, God, that you care and that you are faithful. So we'll give this time of closing response over to you and we ask you to work in as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing all to Jesus, I surrender. And after we sing for a moment, I'll come back and close out our service. Oh, to Jesus I surrender. I hope that you have a blessed afternoon. Don't forget, if you want to contribute to the Medevolence offering, that the ushers will be at the doors as you leave. And you can also do that online if you're not prepared to in the moment. Uh, But otherwise, Lord bless you. Have a good day. I'll be here in the front to talk with you for a few minutes if you have a prayer need or some other step that you want to take. And you're dismissed otherwise.